Have you ever heard of an intervention? Um, there used to be even a TV show, uh, I think it was called Intervention, and basically what they did is they went and talked to people who were, you know, having uh, problems often related to substance abuse or something that was just um, being really destructive in their life. I was looking up this week um, what an intervention is, and, and on the Mayo Clinic's website, they talked about an inter intervention being, you know, this time where family or friends would gather together and they would, um, in, a, in a loving but in a forceful way, they would confront their loved one about this problem that is, you know, usually bringing uh, destruction to their lives. And, and it's, in most cases, it's a problem that the person who's receiving that message is not willing to address or maybe is not even seeing it. And so it says this on the, on the website, it says, an intervention does these three things. It provides specific examples of, of how the behavior is destructive. It offers a prearranged treatment or some sort of a plan, a remedy to help the person in need. And then it spells out what each person will do if their loved one uh, refuses to accept the treatment. So if they're not, you know, accepting the news right on the spot there, they're kind of ready to respond to that and to help them out. This is kind of what the author is doing here in Hebrews chapter 5. Um, let me just ask you to go turn there so we can look at this together. But in Hebrews chapter 5, the author is kind of doing a literary intervention. Okay, now it might not line up exactly with what the intervention that I just described, but it's pretty close. Um, if you've been paying attention in our study uh, through the book of Hebrews, you will have seen that there is a problem here. Um, here we come to chapter 5, and this is the third warning. Remember, we've talked about all these warnings that are coming up in Hebrews. There's five of them, and so this is the third one that we're going to be entering into this week. And um, the author, for the first five chapters, has been laying out a, an argument around theological ideas and primarily wanting to lift up the person of Jesus to say that Jesus is better than, than anything that, we could, that we're familiar with or that we know. He specifically points out how Jesus is better than angels, how beater, Jesus is, is better than prophets or uh, priests. Jesus is better. This is the resounding theme. But now here, in verses 11 to 14, is a moment of pause. And it goes even into the early part of chapter 6, where he kind of stops the argument, stops making a case, a theological case, that is. And he gets really personal with them. And he gets... Um, in, in, a, in a way that an intervention does, he gets kind of in their face about what is really going on and what the problem is. Now, I was a little bit hesitant to use um, the idea of an intervention, but obviously I still used it, mainly because when we think of intervention, we think of this is like someone who is in like serious problems and they need help, and we can think that that is for someone else, it's not for us. But this intervention is serious still. And these believers, I mean, the, the author here really goes at them. But it's, it's also an intervention for us to take in. All right, so I don't want you just to kind of say, oh, this is, a, this is a problem for someone else. This intervention is for all of us. And the way that we respond to 
the, the challenge here that's set before us um, can make the difference between life and death for our own lives and for those that we know and interact with. So we're going to start by looking at the problem, and this is where the author begins. So look at me, look with me um, at verse 11. It says this, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So the author, again, is, is pausing from his theological argument. And before this, in, in the beginning of chapter 5, he was talking about uh, the priesthood and how Christ is better than even the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he, he wants to explain that in greater depth. But he has to pause here and he has to say, I'm not able to do that, actually. I can't, I can't help you with the current problem that you're in because you can't take in the information that I'm going to give to you. Um, because the problem is, as he puts it here, you've become dull of hearing. Um, now, there's, there's many different ways we'll get to like what this word actually means, but what the author here is doing is, is really getting and wanting them to think deeply about the problem that's before him, that he wants to explain these truths to them, but they can understand it. Um, this, though, is done on a foundation of love. So if you read the whole book of Hebrews, you'll see that there's some hard words to hear, but it's all laid on this foundation of love and wanting the best for these people. Even the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face. So Paul says, man, there's times where I need to say something to you, and I'm coming to you with the humility of Christ. It's the love of Christ and, and the meekness of Christ that is driving what I'm doing. But he says, when I'm face to face with you, I'm humble, but bold towards you when I'm away. So he's saying, man, there are times, and if you know the Corinthian church, they had some, like, some real problems that Paul was dealing with. Man, when I'm with you face to face, there's times where I'm humble and I'm meek. But then he's like, sometimes when I'm away and I need to write a message to you, I'm coming hard at you. And, and the truth is just going to come really in a, in a painful way even. And that is what the author is doing here. When he says you've become dull of hearing, that word actually means that you've become like lazy or sluggish. Or another way of putting it is that you've been negligent or it's even sometimes translated as you have become stupid. Okay, so this is... These are harsh words, and even when they come in a spirit of love, those are hard words to hear. That phrase, you have become dull, literally means you've become hard to move. Okay, you've become hard to move in that he's trying to move them in a direction of, of confidence in Christ and in the way of Christ, and it's like hard, man. He's pushing them along, and they're just not moving. That, that word dull, we're probably most familiar with its usage in terms of a knife, right? If a knife is dull, it's just not working. Imagine you take a tomato and you take a dull knife. It just ends up being a, a mushy mess. You push down into it and it's like, it just does not work well. That's because at, a, at like a microscopic level, the knife is dull and it is having a hard time actually going through that tomato, okay? And that's the imagery here that the the author wants them to wants to use to get their attention because they're they've become dull to the reality of the teaching of the word of god and so he's saying for me to help you move forward 
in your Christian lives, in this season of persecution and of difficulty, um, I need to explain some things to you that, that take you to a deeper level of understanding of the Christian faith, but I can't do it. Because you guys have become, you've become dull, you've become negligent, you've become lazy in your understanding. Now, on one hand, you can think this is just a, a problem that they are experiencing, but this is, a, this is a human problem, okay? This is a problem that Christians, believers, have always faced. If you look all the way back to the Old Testament even, you see throughout, you know, the history of God's people, there have been over and over and over again examples of God's people who have just struggled to, to listen and to take in the Word of God as it's come to them. You think of the nation of Israel and how they have just over and over, basically most of the Old Testament is examples of them rejecting God, being dull in their thinking, and God just continually coming back to them saying, will you listen to me? You think even of when Jesus was around. Um, I mean, I've often thought, if Jesus was around me, if, if I could see the miracles, if I could interact with Jesus, I would be one of those ones that would be following him with zeal and tracking along with him. But we know that that's not, it's probably not the case. Um, for, for some, we, we really hope that it would be, but even those who saw Jesus' miracles, um, they struggled in belief. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13, and in Matthew chapter 13, we have this really interesting uh, description here of the disciples asking Jesus about parables. Why do you use parables? And he goes on to talk about the, the way that people are rejecting him and his teaching. So in Matthew chapter 13, Verse 14, it says this, and he's quoting Isaiah. He says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and, and again, in the case of those who are rejecting his teaching. So the prophecy of Isaiah is filled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Man, Jesus is saying, this is what's happening right before your very eyes. There are people that are hearing my teaching, they're hearing my parables, they're seeing the miracles, but their hearing and their seeing is dulled. They can't actually see what God is doing around them, and they are rejecting uh, the work of Christ. So if believers in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, would struggle with this, if people, whether Jewish or Gentile, struggled when Jesus was right there in front of them, and these Hebrews now here in the book of Hebrews are also struggling with, with um, being dull of hearing, we must admit then that that is the case for us as well. That in different seasons of life, um, maybe the season we're in, but maybe uh, it's been a different season before or it's a season that's coming. It has been difficult and it will be difficult to actually follow and, and hear from God. And this is a problem that is for all believers throughout all time for us to recognize and to be aware of. So to make this stick even more, he uses an example. And we've seen this almost every week. The author uses different examples to get their attention. And in this case, he uses the example of food. 
Okay? Usually a mistake for a preacher to talk about food because people start getting hungry. But here he's using uh, the picture of food. So look at verse 12. It says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Okay, so he's saying you guys should be like progressing in your understanding of Christ and of his work. And you should be able to teach these things that I'm explaining to you. And so like what's happening here? It says, for everyone, so at the end there, verse 12, it says, you need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, and the word of righteousness is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. So the author starts by talking about milk and solid food, which is meant to represent the word of God. Okay, so he's trying to get them to think about what it is actually that's happening in their lives that's making it difficult for them to receive this teaching that he wants to offer them. William Lane, in his commentary on Hebrews, probably one of the best commentaries on Hebrews, he says this, The writer makes use of biting irony, confident assurance, sharp warning, and warm encouragement to cajole the community into recognizing that they cannot turn back the clock and deny the reality of the salvation that they've experienced. So the author here is trying to get their attention by saying, you guys are going in reverse. So if you, um, you know, if you have kids or maybe your kid there, you're sitting there and you're what some people call like the baby of the family. That was me, right? The last one born. So you were the last one who was a baby in your household. Um, all of us can picture what that progression looks like. We've, we've seen that in children before, right? They are born and they are completely helpless. They need their parents, mother or father, to, to give them the food that they need, to dress them, to hold them, to keep them safe. These are all the things that a baby needs. They, you know, because they can't take care of themselves at all. And everything they're eating at that time is milk. That's all they're eating. That's the picture that we're getting here. But then we know that over time, um, they start, you know, a little baby grows and they start eating a little bit of cereal maybe, and they start eating like ground up a little bit of food, and then it eventually goes to like um, bananas and, and pasta or something like that. And ultimately, they grow to be a child and they're eating sandwiches and meals like everybody else. Teenagers obviously eat like a ton of food and then grow into adulthood, okay? Eating all kinds of food, not just eating milk. So that's a, that's a picture that we all get and we understand and it makes sense. Here the author now is saying, this is what happens in the spiritual life as well. You get born again. You are a new believer and everything is new and exciting. You take in the word of God. You take in the, the simple truths of the gospel. And uh, maybe you can even remember when you became a believer, you loved to study the Bible. You loved to learn about Jesus. Um, you probably were praying a lot. You loved to be in the gathering with other believers. It's new and exciting. And then over time, you discover that the, the gospel is not just a simple truth. It's, it's simple on one level, but then over time you discover that the gospel is deeper than you ever could have imagined. And it's not like there's some secrets that are revealed, but you understand as you, as you live life and as you grow older, 
that the, the depth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel goes deeper and further than you could have ever imagined. And it begins to change your life. And so the author here is, is saying, what you are doing is you're reversing that trajectory of maturity. You were going in a direction, you were maturing in your faith, and somewhere along the way, probably because of the persecution, probably because of the struggle of their life, maybe because of the conflict of should we trust in Judaism or Christianity in this way of Jesus, somewhere along the way, rather than moving towards maturity, you've turned around and you've gone backwards. You're going back to just drinking milk. You've abandoned the, the deeper truths of the gospel um, in your life. And so, I mean, follow that logic, if you think about it, of a toddler or a teenager or an adult going backwards. It can get kind of awkward kind of quickly, right? You're like, okay, an adult starting to act like a baby. Um, that's not fun to even think about. And then even it's like, that's not good for their health because sure, we might drink milk every once in a while, but we need more than milk. We need more energy. We need more um, food to keep us going. And so that imagery is what the author is trying to do. It is a, it is a calling. This is, their, this is their intervention moment. He's saying, you are going in the wrong direction. You are turning back towards being a baby. And the calling for you and this is key, this is for all of us, the calling is for us to move on toward maturity, is in the midst of hardship, right? He's not saying, I'm taking you away from the persecution you're experiencing. I'm taking you away from the difficulty of life. He's saying, no, the calling for you is in that moment of difficulty, move on toward maturity. So the calling is actually in chapter 6, verse 1, and, and after that, he, he kind of lays into them some more and, and really has a, a, wor a word of warning to them. But in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That's the call. Go on to maturity. Now, what he's saying is not like leave the gospel and kind of like, you know, leave John 3.16 and that's a simple kind of verse. No, he's saying those things are real, but we're not going to stay there. We're going to take those truths and go deeper and move on to maturity. So the calling for each one of us uh, today is move on to maturity. And so how do we do that? He actually spells it out. And we'll look at these um, just to end our time. We'll look at three things here, okay? And look at verse 14 of chapter 5 again. So the first thing here he calls us to do is move on to maturity in being discerning. So the first part of chapter 14 says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained. Okay, he says, this solid food that you need and that I, I want you to enter into is to give you the ability to practice discernment. And um, discernment literally means the ability to decide. Okay, and I don't know about you, but I'm definitely like, my family hates it when I have the remote and we're on Netflix or something because I can never decide on anything. There's like way too many choices, right? There's thousands of shows. Every week there's new movies and shows coming on. I can't decide what to choose. And so we just kind of flick through these different images and watch little previews. And everybody's like, take the remote away from dad. We want to pick something. Um, the, the ability to make a decision can be hard. And just a little note. Netflix is actually coming out with a shuffle feature because I'm not the only one who struggles with the discernment on Netflix. People don't know what to choose, and so they're like, we'll choose for you. The algorithm will do it. But 
in our Christian lives, um, we're faced with all kinds of decisions. We're faced with all kinds of circumstances. We're faced with tons of opportunities where we need to practice discernment. And that can be really hard to know what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do, what is God leading me to do. And so the author here is saying that part of the maturing process, when you begin to enter into that maturing process, your, your ability to discern becomes sharpened because you've interacted with God and you've gotten to know God. So in Psalms chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, so they're not inundated with um, advice and thinking from the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So basically their, their only input is not from those sources. Verse 2 then says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the, the believer is called to, to meditate and to grow in their understanding of what God has to say so that the, the, the counsel of the wicked and the way of the scoffers and the sinners, that is not the overwhelming voice in their life, but it's actually God. And that process becomes like a delight to the believer. Romans 12 verse 2 also says it really clearly, and, and probably many of us who are Christians are familiar with these words. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the first thing that the author encourages us to do is to go towards maturity, because when we interact with the word of God, when we get the the teachings of, of God inside of us and we understand them and know them, it actually helps us to practice discernment. Okay, it doesn't mean we always get it right, but we're able to see the world as it is and make choices on the spot. So how do we do that though? This maturity, how do we, how do we grow in that maturity? It actually comes through training. Look what he says there. So you have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Trained by constant practice. I can remember uh, one time when we were in Guinea, someone gave us a gift of a whole bag of oranges, like a 50 kilo bag of oranges uh, at one time. So we made a bunch of orange juice and we ate a bunch of oranges, but we just had oranges around the house like for a long time. And I was like, you know what? This is my time to learn to juggle. I got all these oranges sitting around here. So I just like every day, I would grab three oranges and I'd start tossing them around and they'd fall all over the place. Didn't matter because we had tons of oranges. I'd just keep going day after day, day after day. And this was like a few weeks before they were obviously rotten, okay? A few weeks of just regular, constant practice and I could actually do some juggling at a basic level, okay? It wasn't like amazing. I wasn't going to move on to chainsaws, but I could do some basic juggling. And so this is what the author is saying here is like, you need... In order to move toward maturity, you need regular training over and over and over again. A study of the love, a study of the Word of God that grows your love for it and grows your love for Christ. Now, this is probably a struggle that um, all of us face, right, on different levels, um, either because of busyness or because of there's other things to do. 
Whether you're a man or woman, this could be a struggle for you. I'm guessing though, just as I was doing some research this week, I'm guessing that probably us guys struggle with this more. And the reason why I say that is because statistically, if you look at surveys and you look kind of just do some basic research, you come to discover that women tend to read more than men do. And that's just regular reading, okay? If you look, if you do, do some research on studies, you see that women read more than men do. And that's not just North America. It's like a global thing. Women like to read more than guys do. You can also see, if you look up some different studies, that women tend to read more scripture than guys do, okay? So um, men like to, often they like to work together, they like to work with their hands, they like to do projects. So reading is not the first thing that you're drawn to. Now that's generalization, might not be the case for you, but kind of a generalization. So this word of constant practice and of training through the word of God Maybe a word that speaks or should speak louder to us men. Um, as spiritual leaders in the home, we want our families, we want our kids, um, we want our extended family members even to see that um, we love the Word of God and we want to know and grow closer to Jesus through it. So this is a word of encouragement. To the, to the men in the audience and also to the women in the audience to a regularly find time to go to the Word of God and to grow in our, our love and appreciation for reading it and studying it. So how do we do that? Really quickly, two ways. Start with the Bible. Okay, that may seem obvious, all right? But sometimes we can be tempted to experience God in other ways. Like maybe you're like, oh, I love worship or I love to be out with, with God in nature. I love to experience God through food. Those are all wonderful things. And those are real ways that you can experience God's presence. But there is no substitute for taking in the scriptures, for taking in the word of God and reading it. And if you've, you know, never done a lot of reading, start by reading one or two verses even every other day if you need to, but start by intaking the Word of God. And secondly, remember the purpose of reading the Word of God. The purpose is clearly said, probably best in 1 Timothy 4-7. It says this, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Okay, the purpose of reading the Bible is not so that we know more about God. It's not so that we can win every, you know, Bible sword drill. The purpose is that it actually would change our lives, that we would meet Jesus, and that we would grow in godliness and affection for Christ because we've been studying the scriptures. So we, we need to mature through the process of learning to be a good discerning and mature through the process of training through constant repetition. And then last, mature through the process of doing. So what does he end with there? He says this, let me just read that last section again. He says, Those who have the power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says, This is the this is going to be the result of constant repetition from discernment, is that you are actually going to be able to know good from evil, which on one level that is a it's a proposition, it's an idea. But this section, this verses 11 through into chapter 6, is not meant to be a theological idea for these uh, readers and for us. It's meant to be practical in nature. 
This is meant to be reflected in your life, in reality, in real time. So, in the book of Acts, the believers were actually called followers of the way, right? The reason they were called that is because they were just regular citizens in the towns and the cities there who were following Jesus and they were following the way. They were living out the life of Jesus in front of their neighbors, in their workplaces, um, in their neighborhoods. They were living out Jesus. And so this, this idea of distinguishing good and evil is not just so that we can look at something and say, mm, that's good or bad, and then you stay back from it. No, it's meant to be in your daily life, in all the different things that happen, you begin to see what is the way of Jesus. So if you're a parent, right, we, we've all had this, your child does something wrong, or maybe they're fighting and there's some disobedience, and, and in your own heart, when joy should be the, the right response, anger rises up, right? Or like disappointment or like exhaustion, whatever it is. And, and so in a moment like that, you're able to distinguish and you're able to, through constant practice and seeing through the word of God, to discern what is the right thing to do. What is the, what is the good thing to do? I want to do the evil thing in this moment, but what is the good thing to do? And will I practice that? Or maybe it's in your relationship with uh, a roommate or something. I don't know what the problem could be. Maybe they've, they've, again, they haven't done their dishes. Or maybe, again, they left that thing open. Or you had some sort of a battle, and you're like, in that moment, I want to do the evil thing. I want to do the thing that is not right. But I know because of the word of God, and as I've been maturing in my faith, that I need to say yes to the way of Jesus. I need to say yes to the way of the Holy Spirit and to, to choose the good from the evil. And so slowly, over time, the Word of God begins to inform your life and it becomes a reality that the teaching of Jesus and the teachings from thousands of years ago, they become um, applied to your life in the here and the now. And this is what the author here wants the audience that he was writing to to discover and us even today, that we need to follow Christ in all areas, and it's the Word of God that is actually going to shape that and shape our thinking over time. So the calling still remains, the calling of chapter 6, verse 1. Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity to understand the gospel in deeper and fuller ways um, for a purpose. You know, when, when Jesus... Uh, left to be with the Father, at the end of Matthew and at the beginning of Acts, he leaves with this promise. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. And we have this gift of the Holy Spirit. But he says, I'm leaving you now as my representatives. You will be the ones who will take the word of Christ around the world. And so we become representatives of Jesus in Elmira here, in your neighborhood, wherever you live, you become a representative of Jesus. And so this call to move on toward maturity is not just to be able to say, I'm mature. Yes. No, the maturity actually is a, a calling for us so that the, the vision of Christ for his church, the vision of Christ for citizens' church here in our town, is actually accomplished through us as we respond to Jesus in the moment, the everyday moments of life, in our families, in our homes, in our neighborhoods and workplaces.